Great. Right. Welcome, everybody, uh, uh, to uh, the Institute for Government and uh, the uh, launch of the Whitehall Monitor 2020, what's in store for government uh, this year. Um, I should say that uh, I'm a very recently recovering civil servant. This is my first IFG event, so you all have to be kind to me. Um, uh, uh, some housekeeping notes to, uh, to kick off with. Uh, we're on the record and uh, being live streamed. Uh, the Twitter hashtag is uh, hashtag IFG or Whitehall Monitor and uh, also follow along at, uh, at IFG events. Uh, uh, there's no fire alarm scheduled, uh, but if there is one, please exit the building down the stairs. Don't use the lift uh, and the gathering spot is by the statue outside. And if there is a first aid incident, clear the room so our designated first aiders can uh, deal with uh, the situation. Uh, so that's the housekeeping uh, out of the way. Uh, I'm really pleased that we've got a, a brilliant uh, panel to uh, discuss the Whitehall Monitor. Um, the uh, structure for the event is going to be that Gavin is going to uh, give us uh, uh, 10 to 12 minutes on the content of the report, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll go into uh, a few minutes for each of the panel to give us their thoughts, and then we'll have a wider discussion and open the floor to uh, questions, uh, which may include... Uh, uh, issues around staff turnover, the skills that the civil service has uh, for the future, major government projects in a time of uh, much uh, interest in uh, infrastructure uh, investment, uh, and what will the future shape of government look like, uh, uh, whether it's full of misfits and weirdos uh, or not. Um, but first, to uh, introduce the panel, so I'll uh, start on the far right with uh, Nitika Agarwal, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Apolitical. Um, she spent time uh, in the Treasury, uh, she's worked for the government in uh, Brussels, and she's worked with various human rights uh, NGOs, and I know is uh, going to be able to give us a bit of an international flavour uh, and, and comparisons uh, to, um, uh, uh, to the discussion. Uh, next to her, Charlotte uh, Pickles, who is the Director of um, reform. Uh, she's had experience in uh, a variety of think tanks in the media, in the private sector, and also uh, as an advisor to a cabinet minister. Uh, uh, Chris Cook, uh, who is partner and editor at uh, Tortoise Media. Uh, probably the biggest compliment I can give him is that whenever his name was attached to something in government, we all got the heebie-jeebies because he's a man who actually uh, understands and cares about the government digital service uh, and uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, cares and, uh, about isn't the right word. He's uh, <laughs> passionate about. Um, so uh, Chris will, uh, will bring uh, that perspective. Uh, and then uh, uh, the IFG's own Gavin Freegard, uh, who has been uh, working very busily on uh, the Whitehall Monitor um, uh, and uh, is our programme director for uh, data and transparency uh, and the master of the monitor, as I say. Um, so, uh, Gavin, over to you, really, to uh, introduce uh, for the first ten minutes or so. Well, thank you, Alex, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to the launch of this year's Whitehall Monitor, which looks at the size, shape and performance of government in 61 charts... I'm not going to run through all of them now, don't worry, um, across subjects as diverse as government finances, the civil service workforce and digital services. Now, this is our seventh annual report. To be honest, we could have done 107 of these and not seen a year quite like 2019 and its particularly unique brand of political turbulence and transformation. <laughs> This is what Parliament looked like after the 2017 general election. Tories lost their majority, but were just over that working majority line with the support of the DUP. By the time we got to the end of the 17 to 19 Parliament, that had all fallen apart, um, definite minority, minority territory, as we saw more MPs change allegiance than at any other point since 1886. <laughs> then we came to the 2019 general election. 
a convincing win for the Conservative Party, giving Boris Johnson's government an effective working majority of 87. A government without majority, we might expect to get its legislation through Parliament much more easily than the previous one, but it's a government that has set itself a very ambitious agenda, getting Brexit done, levelling up the country through investing in public services and infrastructure, and of course changing the way that government works. So as we look ahead to 2020, how is government going to deliver on all of those promises? Does it have the right skills in the civil service workforce? Is government organised to deliver and how much change to ministerial uh, sort of teams and government departments would be too much? Can government effectively prioritise the right major project under political pressure? And does government have the data it needs to run itself more effectively and to allow us on the outside to hold it to account? So let's start with the civil service workforce. Here is a chart showing you civil service staff numbers back to 1902 to 2010, where civil service staff numbers were about 480,000. You can see those spikes, uh, which are both world wars. So if it's 480,000 in 2010, I think those of you who've been to this presentation before will know what, what's about to happen next. We see a fall in staff numbers to uh, June 2016, not quite as far as the civil service reform plan expected in 2012, which was about 380,000, but not far off. Since the 2016 referendum, we've seen an increase in every single quarter uh, to about 419,000. Now, not all of those changes have been driven by Brexit. We've seen Ministry of Justice recruiting prison officers. We've seen departments like education and digital culture, media and sport adapt to new responsibilities. But obviously quite a lot of that is driven by Brexit. And in fact, the number of civil servants working specifically on Brexit has tripled since 2018 to about 27,500. Now, those new recruits, Generation Brex, if you want a, a headline-friendly formulation, um, have also changed the nature of the civil service. They tend to be in more senior roles, they're more likely to be in London, and they're increasing the diversity, especially when it comes to gender, but also when it comes to there being more ethnic minority and disabled civil servants, though there is still more work to do at more senior levels. And despite the fact that the age of the civil service is still ticking upwards, we're also seeing an increase in the percentage of those aged under 30 as recruitment freezes thaw. And we'd expect that those younger civil servants are bringing new skills with them, especially around data and digital. Which brings us very nicely to the question of what it is that civil servants actually do and what skills they have. Now, I think when we think of the civil service, we tend to think a lot of the buildings not far from this one, and particularly those things that most government departments need to do. Policy, delivering projects, HR, legal, digital data and technology, uh, analytics, finance, commercial skills, those kind of things. We might also think of skills which are specific to particular departments, think tax or science and engineering, but actually most civil servants are not in those groups. They're in this big pink block here, more than half of them. That, of course, is the operational delivery bit of the civil service. Civil servants up and down the country working in prisons, in job centres, processing benefits and immigration claims. Now, does anybody know what that dark grey, almost black block might be there on the right? Any ideas what those civil servants do? Anyone? And um, government doesn't know either, to be honest. Um, <laughs> 
so um, this is civil servant self-reporting which professional groups uh, they belong to. And you can see that for one in ten civil servants, we don't actually know. I think it's a very useful illustration of the fact that government still doesn't have a lot of basic workforce management information it should have uh, when it's thinking about its workforce, especially as it faces uh, sort of big ambitions. Now, I'm sure some of you were reading over Christmas a particular blog post uh, slash job advert. <laughs> Um, and although the cabinet office analysts in the room can correct me, I don't think there's currently an occupational category for weirdos and misfits with odd skills. But if we do look at the other professions that Dominic Cummings referred to, um, policy, project delivery, digital data and technology, economics, which is part of analytics, communications and science, we can see that there are already a lot of people in the civil service with those sorts of skills. So the question is not just how do you bring different people into government, but how do you make the most of those that you've already got. Now, over the last few years, we've seen some steps forward by various government professions and functions. They're trying to build career paths for particular um, experts and trying to develop particular skills and capabilities, an agenda that the Institute is very supportive of. And, but again, because of the lack of publicly available data, we can't be absolutely certain which areas are proving more successful than others as these reforms are rolled out. Another perennial workforce issue in the civil service is that of staff turnover. It's something the Fulton Report identified as a problem more than 50 years ago. And Institute for Government Research last year found that in central government departments, it's costing around 74 million a year in terms of lost productivity, as well as disrupting delivery and institutional memory. Let's take a look. Uh, these are the turnover numbers for departments back in 2018. You can see, if you look at the left-hand side, around a fifth of civil servants in Dexu, the Cabinet Office uh, and Treasury, were either leaving the department or leaving the civil service altogether in 2018. That's quite a high level of turnover. And if we now look at the 2019 dots, which will magically appear on the screen, it has come down in some places but remains high and has actually increased in five departments, including Dexu, where it's up to 40%. What can government do to tackle that? Well, we've previously recommended reforms to pay and progression structures, but also to make permanent secretaries more accountable for these numbers. And again, these numbers can be slightly difficult. It's another area where it's quite difficult to get hold of some of the information on turnover, which implies that departments themselves are not properly using <coughs> the data. We're very supportive of the Treasury recommendation that departments should now publish turnover on an annual basis, and we'll be tracking that over the next few years. So civil service turnover is an issue, um, but so too is ministerial turnover. And now on this chart you can see all of the departments ranged along the bottom. You're about to see lots of bars up here representing all of the ministers. Now there are actually some ministers that survive in the same post that David Cameron appointed them to. Uh, one sixth of the ministers at the Department for Education, one third of the law officers, and half of the office of the leader of the House of Lords, or as they prefer to be called, Nick Gibb, Lord Keane, and Lord Howe. There's a niche pub quiz question for you. <laughs> More survive from May, but if we look at the whole of government, three quarters of all ministers are new to their posts since July 2019, that one in 10 since December. Now again, it's obvious that a new government is going to want to make its mark and put ministers in new posts, but of course there is a price if you disrupt that too often. It takes time for ministers and for departments to get used to new personalities and priorities. Same is true when it comes to classic bit of Whitehall jargon, MOG changes. Not those sorts of MOGs. 
and not those sorts of mob changes. Any excuse to put some of the cats of Whitehall up on the screen. Uh, but machinery of government changes, the making and breaking of government departments. Uh, this chart shows you what's happened back to 1975. Now, again, a new government coming in will want to bring complementary policy areas together, will want to focus on particular priorities. But it does cost time and energy to create new departments and get them up and running. Now, we've already been made aware of one machinery of government change. The Department for Exiting the European Union will close at the end of this month. Um, that means that future negotiations will come under the direct control of the Prime Minister, something the Institute recommended back in 2016. Hate to say we told you so. Um, but various other um, machinery of government changes have been mooted over the last few weeks. So there might be some change with the Home Office, with borders and immigration moving. Again, something that we've said should be considered. Perhaps a Department of the Union. Perhaps the recreation of a standalone Department for Climate Change. We've got an event on that very topic here next week. And various changes that, in, that sort of cover an area that's already seen a lot of change over the last few decades, whether it's business, trade, or bits of the Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sport. Again, government needs to be very clear about what it's trying to achieve and assess whether the time, cost, and energy will be worth it. On top of all of that, the government has set forward quite an ambitious uh, agenda for investing in public services and for infrastructure projects. Now, the government already has a lot of big projects in its major projects portfolio, 133 of them to be precise, covering everything from HS2 to Crossrail to big defence and military projects to big IT and service transformation projects within government. Those 133 projects are, have a whole life cost of £442 billion, pounds, or to put it in terms that we'd all understand, 8.8 .8 million Big Ben bombs. <laughs> Surprisingly difficult to say, even on a Tuesday afternoon. Now, this doesn't even include Brexit projects, and of course, getting Brexit done is going to take a lot more than just passing the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. But you can see that the number has come down. Government has started to prioritise. Civil service leaders have long said government is doing too much to do it all well. The Prime Minister has sent Cabinet Ministers back to their departments to try to cut down on the number of projects. So government does know that it needs to prioritise, but it is going to face some quite difficult decisions over the next few years and months as it tries to balance costs, benefits and politics. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the discussion around HS2 at the moment. Finally, let's take a look at data and transparency. Um, Chris will be particularly delighted by this. It is, of course, the 20th anniversary of the Freedom of Information Act this year and 15 years since it came into operation. Uh, this chart is showing you how departments have responded to FOI requests between 2005 and 2010. Now, the blue shows you where they have granted more than half of the requests they've received in full. The pink, where they've granted fewer than that. The darker the blue, the more open the department. The darker the pink, uh, the more closed. Now, you can see that the blues are um, sort of dominating there, just like Parliament. Um, but if we spin this forward to 2019, you will see that actually the pinks take over at the expense of the blues, which basically means that government departments are releasing less information in response to freedom of information requests. Now, why is that? We might say it's a lack of political will to open things up and publish it. But there are also other reasons. FOI requests, the number is increasing, and the teams dealing with them aren't really um, increasing at the same rate. Because there is more information available in the public domain, and there's now a case history of FOI, it might be that requests are becoming more complex and after more sensitive information. We put in a number of FOI requests um, in order to publish Whitehall Monitor 2020. 
My favourite was one that we had refused by the Cabinet Office for data they tell other departments they have to publish. Um, and that, in fact, that data is organogram data, um, which gives you a sense of the structure, salaries, and grades and things within departments. It's supposed to be published every six months. You can see from the pinks here that actually it tends not to be published by quite a lot of departments. And when it is published, it tends to be published late. Now, as those of you who've been to uh, these launches before will know, I could rattle on about organograms for longer than is healthy, but why should you care about them? Well, it goes beyond the fact that departments are not publishing what they've been mandated to by the Prime Minister. The fact that this data is so difficult to pull together, the fact that when it is published, it's not of a quality that makes it easy to use, just like the turnover data, just like the professions data, suggests government still doesn't have the data it needs to better understand its operation and therefore improve its effectiveness. So in summary, the civil service has grown. It's started to change in terms of composition, but turnover and skills will continue to be challenges as it confronts an ambitious domestic agenda. There are good reasons why a new government wants to put its stamp on its ministerial teams and on the makeup of Whitehall, but reshuffles and machinery changes can be disruptive. Government is going to have to make some tough choices when it comes to balancing costs, benefits and the politics of various major projects. And government is less open than it used to be on some measures and it still lacks the data it needs to run itself well. Um, as I said, I didn't run through all 61 charts, but you can find the report on our website. Do take some time to uh, read through it. In the meantime, I look forward to hearing the panel's reflections and discussing with the rest of you. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Gavin. Really, really uh, interesting. Um, I might start with uh, Charlie and uh, uh, ask you a nice sort of open question. What will the future shape of government look like, based on uh, what we've just heard? Oh, Your thoughts? Well, if only I could answer that in a kind of, you know, 20-second soundbite. Um, I think, uh, in terms of the machinery of government stuff, um, I mean, Gavin alluded to this, um, it sounds nice. Um, it kind of sounds sort of quite appealing to rebrand some things, to shift some things about, particularly uh, where perhaps you've got some politics involved, so thinking about uh, it, it, the international... Um, uh, aid department, but actually we've already heard the government row back from some of that stuff because it is so time consuming and it, it, you know, it's ultimately you're going to end up, I can't remember what the figure was, it was in the um, media recently of the suggestion of, of how many uh, civil servants it would take just to do machinery of government changes, but it was a vast number. Um, so I think in terms of machinery of government, I think perhaps we will see less of a shift in that, but clearly um, we have a uh, I think, you know, very welcome. Um, we finally have a government that, that is not only ambitious in what it's saying it wants to do, but it has the ability in terms of its majority to do a lot of that and almost not to worry about even parliament in this. And I think one of the worries, which perhaps we might come on to later, is around where the kind of scrutiny and accountability is going to come from um, in this current uh, political setup. So I think um, we are going to see quite an ambitious um, agenda, but I also think that you know, Gavin's absolutely on the money in saying kind of there's going to be a lot of tensions and not just in terms of the cost but actually in terms of um, the sort of what's quite dull but probably quite outside of the world but quite interesting to most people in this room but the sort of um, the trade-off between the fiscal responsibility and the fiscal rules that have been set versus the ambition of some of the changes that uh, government's saying it wants to do and I think if it can't achieve uh, what 
Dominic Cummings is saying around bringing in new talent, uh, and I think in particular around the cognitive diversity point, um, then I think it's going to struggle to deliver a, an ambitious agenda. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really one of the things that struck me looking at the um, Vice Monitor is, is how uh, everyone agrees that there are too many major projects in the major projects uh, uh, portfolio, but uh, this government wants a lot more major projects, a lot more infrastructure. Yeah. So that's something we can uh, sort of tease out. Yeah. Um, Litika, do you want to uh, talk about uh, the international uh, side based on your experience? Yeah, so um, something that we look at quite a lot at Apolitical is um, what a future government looks like, what a future-facing government looks like, and that is government that is responsive to rapidly changing um, societal needs and technology, um, and is it fleet-footed in response to those challenges as experienced by citizens rather than how government decides to organise itself. Um, and in that context, um, we look at the skills, uh, there's been a lot of talk of what, what skills are required for public servants. And um, Dominic Cummings' blog post focused quite a lot on specialist skills because the predominant narrative in the UK has been that we've focused too much or relied too much on smart generalists and we need people who actually know their stuff a little bit more. Now, while that's absolutely true, um, Gavin, you made the point that we actually have quite a lot of technical specialists in government already. Um, but secondly, um, it depends on what we um, see as the role of government and the role of civil servants generally. So if you see civil servants as being specialist advisors to ministers, then absolutely that technical knowledge is really important. There'll always be a need for that. But um, government is increasingly becoming more of a platform. And if government is a kind of facilitator and a convener, you actually need more civil servants who are really good at the generalist stuff and who are able to convene very quickly around different challenges in order to be adaptive. And if you look at the OECDs, um, uh, like they've got an international civil service competency framework and I picked out some choice competencies that I thought was, was very interesting because if they had been in my competency framework when I was in government I would have I would have been quite excited about them so strategic is obviously a word that we use often in the government but then in addition to being outcomes focused and evidence-based which is obviously um, quite mainstream in UK government you have future orientated um, proactive and networked, by which they meet networks outside of government as well as inside of government. So that's really interesting because that's, that's not usually um, emphasized as much. And then um, there's a whole separate uh, stream for innovative. Um, and in addition to being citizen-centered and data literate, both of which were highlighted in, in um, the blog, there's curious, storytellers, iterative, and this is my favorite, insurgent. Um, so, so I think that, that my point is that there is um, a much wider scope of skills that is needed for the generalist civil servant who is fit for the government of the future, and it's not just about um, increasing the number of data specialists in government. Um, I could go on um, about the shape of government. Do I have time, um, or should I pause uh, for a second? Just so, okay, so um, about the shape of government. So um, a lot of focus is often put on the machinery of government changes, work departments um, should ex exist, etc. cetera. Um, regardless of the shape, um, uh, the trends that we're seeing across governments around the world is how do we actually break silos within departments? Like wherever you choose to draw the lines between the departments, um, the point is that um, the, 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 those silos like, reduce the effectiveness of government ultimately um, from a citizen-centered perspective. And so um, New Zealand has probably 
possibly the most advanced or has been the most ambitious in this respect, where they have created new structures, which they call interagency executive boards or interdepartmental ventures, which basically are a bit of a version of the new cabinet committees that um, Boris Johnson's been talking about. Um, where different agencies and departments come very quickly together around a societal challenge um, as relevant to the work of all of those agencies and they have hiring power um, and their own corporate structure associated with them and they're kind of formed and rapidly disbanded. Um, so there are, there are versions of this across the world. So Portugal, I think, is the first country in the world that has um, actually created like an, uh, an experimental lab in their equivalent of a cabinet office and have created legislative changes in order to insulate the work of that lab so they're allowed to do things that the rest of government isn't allowed to do and if it works then they roll it out mainstream across government but again it's kind of bringing these um, uh, people from across government together to focus on a challenge. Um, the UAE has set up crisis teams um, where civil servants have to come together and solve challenges within 100 days and really ambitious ones. So those are just some examples of how governments um, around the world are becoming more fleet-footed in response to these challenges. Um, and I sort of think the conversation about where the departmental silos are is kind of a bit behind the times. Like, that's where the future of government needs to be going. Yeah. More citizen-focused, more problem-focused, rather than the classic Whitehall behemoths. Yeah. Um, Great, thank you. Uh, Chris, you uh, uh, have established something of a reputation as a Dominic Cummings expert. Um, are we, have, we, uh, have we all been sort of uh, distracted by uh, all the sound and fury around blogs and job adverts um, from some things that are actually really sensible, quite boring, most civil servants would agree with them, better people uh, in, in, in the right jobs? Yeah, what do you think? I think, the, I think there's a... Um, I think it's worth taking a step back, actually, because the, when we talk about specialism and expertise, it's worth considering, thinking about Whitehall going back, say, 10 years. If you think, pick the departments where there, is the most, there was the most specialist expertise and the least generalism, say, in 2010, 2012, they are the departments, broadly speaking, where ministers were having the worst time convincing their departments to do what they wanted to do, right? So the DWP which is, has a fairly impenetrable task to anyone who's not spent a 1,000 years staring at the pension models, um, they're having a fight with IDS about universal credit, and Michael Gove was not having a fight with the Department for Education, but he was certainly having a, very, a lot of very passive-aggressive conversations with them about why they needed to sort of go faster. Um, in both cases, the specialists in the department were completely right. I mean, UC has, has not worked, and you know, it's, we're years off schedule. The Department for Education was entirely correct that just letting her teachers pay themselves more money wouldn't actually probably make schools a lot better for some reason. Um, but the, in both cases, they were seen as obstructionist. And the idea that we can have this sort of cadre of super specialist people and ministers are going to get what they want is something that they, we need to think a lot about and what exactly the role of the civil servant is, especially civil servant is in all this stuff. On the blog post-y stuff, um, the, I thought one of the striking things in there is the idea that you could bring in... So this was, I think, as we've understood it, that was an attempt to effectively recruit a sort of policy unit, like a special advisor policy unit. The, the idea that you're going to get a 23-year-old, whoever, who's going to come in because they can use TensorFlow and Python, and is going to find something that the team of 900 people in the Department for Education haven't noticed about the school system, is berserk. 
what they will probably find is, oh, you know this thing over here is nuts, Department of Education. They'll say, yes, can you tell your ministers? We've been saying this for 35 years. Like the, the, the best thing they're going to be able to do is replicate, perhaps in a different silo, what the analysts in, in the central department, in the Whitehall departments are doing. The, I'm, I'm a sort of conventionally trained <coughs> econometrician, and I taught myself uh, about machine learning when I discovered it was the exciting new thing, and I don't think I've used it since. And the, <laughs> um, the, fundamentally, the data sets that the government has are ones which are perfectly amenable to, um, to conventional statistical analysis. You don't need any of these exciting new whizzy things. The normal distribution is still fine, right, you know? The, um, and one of the things I would stress as well is that conventional statistics also allows, has a lot more accountability and so, built, built into it. Like the way it works is you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, you sort of walk back. One of the features of machine learning is things tend to be very opaque. So you find out, you, you don't really know why the machine has told you this relationship exists, but it, but it does, apparently. And in public authorities, we have to think really, really carefully about opaque processes that, for example, might discover a really good shortcut to work out if someone is going to be a good credit risk is their ethnicity. Because that's stuff they've been fighting with the US and in banking for, for years. Um, the discovery that you might accidentally create basically disparate impact in public services by using opaque processes is something that you really care about with machine learning. So I'm quite skeptical about that. Um, on the freedom of information, the fundamental reason why it's collapsed is because everyone has worked out that it's not enforced. So the, in 2011, the root of my relationship with Dominic Cummings, we wrote a story about how he had written a, an email to his colleague saying, don't email me on my Department of Education address, just use a Gmail address. I'll tell you why in person, dot, dot, dot. Um, we FOI'd a sequence of emails, which we already got copies of from the Department of Education. They denied they existed because they were sent through the sort of private network of emails. When we told the Information Commissioner about this, we told them sort of an anonymized basis. We told them, um, we've got this email. We're not going to tell you where it's from. But they thought it was local government. So they said, oh, great, we'll get a warrant, and then we'll go and take their computers. And when they found out it was Whitehall, they said, oh, we'll send them a sternly worded letter, right? <laughs> there is no enforcement in Whitehall. Everyone knows it. I mean, <coughs> I think Whitehall is more frightened of journalists working out people are lying than they are of the information commissioner. And while that is the case, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, there are a diligent group of FOI officers in Whitehall who are trying their best to fulfill their statutory obligations and avoid and prevent ministers from committing actual crimes. Section 77 of the FOI Act is an actual crime to knowingly not comply with a request. Um, but they're a dying breed, as people realise, it's a, an optional act. Okay. Interesting stuff. Can I just Charlie, do you want to come back? Um, so I think, it's, it, I think it is a very interesting question um, as to whether the civil service currently have the skills it needs, and I, I think it, all, it already does have an awful lot of skills. Um, I don't think that is the same thing as saying it's got cognitive diversity. Yeah. And I think the interesting aspect, and it sort of comes back to the points actually that you were, the, the different attributes you were describing um, that are sort of seen as internationally very important. And I think, you know, it's interesting to me, in the monitor I was looking at um, uh, the diversity section, and of course there's lots of data on women and ethnic minorities, and some of it's good and some of it's really depressing and what have you. But actually the really, in, that doesn't measure cognitive diversity. Yeah. It doesn't measure diversity in the sense of, well, how will I approach a problem or a challenge? You know, how do I think through this issue in government? And 
Um, social mobility is one of the things that might get us closer because you're more likely to have people who have different experiences and different perspectives than if everybody comes from a very similar set of backgrounds. Um, and you point out that we don't have the data yet, but we should be getting it in future. But one of the things you do say is that of the fast streamers appointed in 2018, 68% of them came from was it higher managerial administration and professions, or sorry, parents came from those or something, um, which does tell you a lot about the fact that um, and I say this with all due respect to the people who come in those categories, and, and, and there are very many of them in the civil service, um, but they are identicates of each other. And actually, if you want to use the skills effectively, you need people who can do it in a way which is going to challenge each other, because that's going to get you to a better solution. So yes, the skills might be there, but actually, we're not necessarily, we haven't necessarily got the, the kind of diversity which most um, people would agree are what drives high-performing teams when people do analysis which is perspective and experience. Um, and I would just also add one additional thing. I think the, the point about the DFE and DWP in, uh, in the early years of the coalition, um, and I, my caveat here was that I was in the DWP. So, uh, <laughs> so I would put that kind of health warning and hopefully I'm, this is not a sort of defensive response. Um, actually, I didn't find the DWP to be um, oppositional in coming in and wanting to do universal credit um, and other reforms that uh, Ian at the time was talking about. Um, what I found was a real appetite for change after whatever it was, 13 years of the Labour government. Um, you know, most governments, dare I say it, given where we are at the moment, with the current government slightly run out of ideas and a bit of steam and, you know, kind of sort of get through time and, and, and things slightly uh, deteriorate in terms of output. Um, I found the DDP to be very welcoming of a new agenda that was going to be ambitious and that was going to position it as a poverty fighting department as opposed to just a transactional benefits payment department. I don't think the problem was that there was uh, too much specialism. I think part of the problem was that it didn't have this ability to challenge. It didn't have the sort of the kind of the diversity of perspective at the top, which might have allowed. Um, and I'm, I'm in no way defending universal credits <laughs> delivery here because I mean it's a sort of impossible thing to do. But I do think there was also some reluctance. In fact, I know there was some reluctance to be transparent in those senior levels of civil service in actually saying to the ministerial team, "This is the feedback we're getting from suppliers. These are the challenges." just in the delivery programmes, and a lot of that never reached the ministerial team. Certainly, I certainly think that one of the critiques, far from being sort of too obstructionist, is that particularly early in the political cycle, when yeah. a civil servant is trying to, yeah. the machine is trying to build relationships with uh, their new ministers, um, uh, it's, it's, it's too hard and, uh, and they're too cautious in terms of saying uh, 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 no minister or uh, expressing no service. That's, that's caution. Generally always true. It's a, I think the most astonishing um, numbers in all of Whitehall are the, the, the small number of requests for ministerial direction. Yeah. Like completely yeah. perplexing. Like the, how is, how is the Department of International Trade not continuously yeah. working? Just why do we exist? What is the point of us? Why are we doing this? That's because ministerial direction is about narrow use of money. But it's, I mean, and it's, the, and it's, quite, it's actually quite a narrow, uh, a narrow framework. But I mean, I completely, completely take your point. Yeah. There's a question about how policy is exposed and how policy debates are exposed on that. Um, I'm going to open up for questions in a moment, but Nitika, do you want to come yeah, back? Yeah, just to add to, to, to um, Charlie's comments, um, which I fully agree with, um, there's also a focus on what skills to bring in or what cognitive diversity to bring in 
there's a whole separate set of issues around once they're in, are you yeah. managing it properly? Yeah. And you, to be honest, I would say the management part is probably the bottleneck, not that there's not enough skills or even um, you know, diversity of thinking in the civil service, because I don't think we're making the most of what there is. Um, so there's, it, those things range from, are you even placing talent in the right sorts of positions? Um, Canada set out to be quite ambitious in this respect and set up something called Talent Cloud. They basically have a digital marketplace of people in the civil service with their skills, um, their skills not experience, not, not kind of CV level experience, but their actual skills endorsed by colleagues um, and, and very clearly signposted. Um, and there's a kind of much more efficient, or they're hoping for a much more efficient matching process in that respect, right down to um, do individual managers in the civil service know how to um, solicit ideas from the bottom up from their teams? And in the hierarchical um, sort of environment that government is, it, it, you know, those those ideas don't come so often. Um, so I, I think that kind of. If I was going to start anywhere, I'd be like managing and encouraging cognitive diversity. Finding those people, bringing those people together, uh, uh, empowering them, and building on some of the. I mean, there's some really exciting stuff like One Team Gov and the kind of Gov Camp stuff, but it's patchy. Yeah. Uh, so how do we do more of that? Um, Gavin, I'm going to ask you for reflections and then open it, open it to the floor for questions. That's exactly what I was about to say as well. Um, following on from those sort of points about the cognitive diversity and different ways of working, especially across departments. So it's three things quickly. First. That point about age and the fact we've got younger people coming into the civil service. Alex is writing something on this, so keep your eyes peeled on the Institute for Government website later. But um, millennials and sort of Gen Z, and I am still a millennial, just about, um, you know, do bring different skills, do work in different ways, have a completely different relationship with information and how we use it and how we process it, so on and so forth. And again, trying to make the most of that. It's not something which features massively in the civil service diversity and inclusion strategy, but I know departments are now starting to understand well. How do you deal with the younger workforce? How do you get the best out of them? Um, I think the second thing is when it comes to managers in particular, the Civil Service People Survey is actually quite an effective management tool in many respects. One of the findings that we've got in Whitehall Monitor is that for all of the change that we've seen over the last few years, um, morale as measured by the People Survey has actually stayed quite constant. And I think it's because you know, good managers and good teams are looking at those numbers and actually using them to think about, well, what are the issues in our team? Where can we improve? So there may be something in there that, that, that can be sort of rolled out to tackle some of those points. And again, on that point about you know, working in different ways, I think one of the most successful things about the sort of growth in digital government um, over the last decade has been new skills coming in and understanding how to use those as part of multidisciplinary, to, uh, multidisciplinary teams. You're not necessarily looking for civil servants who can do everything themselves, but can you find a team which is able to bring together that mix of skills? We've seen that go into things like GovCamp. We've seen that go into One Team Gov. As people try to bring policy, digital implementation, all of those different things together. So how can we do more of that over the next um, decade or so is a big question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, questions. And I should say at this stage, if anyone is next door and wants to ask a question, then do pop your head uh, through. Uh, uh, but we'll kick off here, the front. Um, I'm a relatively new civil servant in the, uh, in the Cabinet Office. Um, I think we all understand there's a difference between listening and hearing. I was very taken with a phrase, but I took something fairly innovative to the Treasury the term that came back to me was novel and contentious. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent is 
government ready to hear about innovation? It's a great question. The horror of novel and contentiousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who was that? Charlie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's ex exactly the right question to ask. And um, it, it sort of comes back to um, the point that was being made around uh, if you've got the right people who can come up with innovative ideas and kind of look at a, a problem slightly differently, do you have the culture and the environment in which those people can flourish? And I think we are asking for disruptors in one of the most risk-averse environments that we could possibly have in the civil service, and particularly in the Treasury. And I think the Treasury would be a great place to start in terms of overhauling machinery of government. Um, and obviously, we are already seeing the government wanting to sort of you know, measure things in slightly different ways and what have you. Um, so I think unless you can get a civil service and a senior civil service that is going to be open to, to being risk-aware but not being as risk-averse, then I think we're going to keep getting this kind of um, brick wall hit when interesting ideas come up. I also think um, there's a question actually about how, where people like yourself have interesting novel uh, ideas, um, how might we get those into the political um, conversation? So not just going through the usual kind of, you know, what is ultimately really quite an onerous hierarchy uh, within the civil service of putting ideas up the chain, but actually is there a way that, you know, there could be a point, point every whatever week that civil servants could submit ideas to a political team or ministers or an extended ministerial office or whatever that might look like, um, where there might be a slightly different response to that that you might get in the traditional hierarchy. Chris? The, I think there's a, there's, um, I was going to say this before you answered, <laughs> so, so it doesn't feel like, look like a pointed dig. But um, the, the, um, the word disruption is a really difficult word. Like innovation is a healthy word in the civil service. Like we need, yeah. we need innovation, we need things to change. And too often, those of us who are sort of, you know, from commercial institutions think of disruption as a perfectly natural, healthy thing too. We think in terms of taking market share from another organization, basically. Um, but disruption in the public services is often the single worst thing imaginable. So you need to say so that one of the things that defines what the state does is they are things that tend to be, have difficulty raising productivity, that's why they end up with the state having to pay for them, like healthcare. There are also, there are things where you need continuity of supply and service where you can't afford to have the service collapse or shut down or be disrupted. And too often there's a lot of like, um, the, the, I think your, your sort of thought about how you need to be risk aware but not risk averse is, is actually quite a neat way in sort of thinking about this. Because there's, there's too much, particularly at the sort of top end, the political end, there's too much um, insouciance, basically, about if you're, a, if you're a person who lives on ESA or universal credit, the idea of disruption is terrifying, right? And the, if you have a family in hospital, the idea of disruption is awful. It is not a good thing. And we need to find a way of, of like making the civil service think about innovation as a good thing but maybe understanding that the sort of the lexicon and the, the thought process of being indifferent about the sort of creative destruction is not a healthy thing. Thank you. I'm going to keep us moving through. So there's a question here, and then Robert, and then uh, uh, we'll carry on. So, Thank you. Um, Imran, I'm, uh, I work for Children's Charity, called Action for Children. Um, universal credit, uh, I mean, I think the problems with it are we're about its design, its delivery, its funding. Now, Design and delivery, people were saying right at the start. I, mean, I was one of those people who were working with different tracks at the time was say, saying all those things. And I think one of the problems was people, uh, um, you know, a lot of the homework on universal credit had been done in opposition. So when people get into government, they want, they want to get on and deliver it. 
uh, uh, I think also the Blair book didn't help. <laughs> so I think people took away the message from Blair's book. book uh, you know, usual usual political cap uh, capital really early on to get things done in your first term. So there was definitely that kind of culture. So. Given where we are now, with the, uh, uh, the majority of the current the government has at the moment, well, how are they going to use their, spend their political capital uh, on universal credit? Are they going to be thinking about the new MPs in the north who are going to, you know, it's a different profile of constituents, arguably, uh, uh, than, than they've had before uh, for, uh, for Conservative MPs? Are they going to focus on that, or do they just want to stop talking about universal credit and hope uh, over time it becomes uh, you know, more boring? Do I think they're going to use their political capital to focus on universal credit? No, is my simple answer. Um, it's one of those, I mean, I'm sure they might try and do some tweaks to kind of ease things a bit. And as any MP, wherever you are in the country, will say, you know, a vast chunk of their uh, inbox is about universal credit. I mean, you know, kind of. I know several MPs and, and you know, really, really large chunk of their work day-to-day uh, -day is about universal credit. But do I think it's going to be a big priority for the government? I don't. I think there are some obvious quick wins, whether it's the waiting times or whether it's, you know, paying direct or whatever it might be. There's some obvious kind of policy tweaks you could do. Um, but I would imagine that the political capital this government has, and it is a huge amount of political capital, will go more on the ambitious, bigger programmes uh, that I think um, Boris Johnson has shown to have more of an interest in. Sure, that's right. Uh, Robert Hazel, you had a question. Robert Hazel from the Constitution Unit at UCL. It's a quick question to Chris about ministerial directions. I think it's right that two or three years ago the criteria were widened beyond legal and financial propriety to include feasibility. So could you just confirm whether that is correct? And do you know whether any ministerial directions have been sought on the grounds that the project is too ambitious in terms of its timetable or it's bound to go over budget? So the good thing, I, when I used to find out about ministerial directions, I just asked Gavin. So I used to ring him up and say, <laughs> how many have, been, have there been? So I think I'll just pass yeah, it over. So um, <laughs> we have some charts for that on our website, understandably. Um, there was an extra criterion added, which I think was feasibility. Again, it is drawn such that it does refer to the sort of financial side of things um, rather than anything more general. I don't think it's been used often, if at all, but I can tweet a proper answer to that question after the event is finished when I've gone back to the data. I can't remember any <laughs> since the, since the um, no deal Brexit planning, when they did a load of sort of technical ministerial directions, which were sort of yeah. a pointless waste of everyone's time, because yeah. they were just yeah, yeah, covering themselves. Uh, at the front here. Shall we on to one, one yeah. on the on the ministerial direction? I do think this, this idea that you can say, I think this project is not is poor value for money because it will cost my department more than the allotted amount, or this is a poor use of public funds. As a sort of discrete category from this is obviously nuts and not going to work, and I don't know why I'm being asked to do this. It strikes me as a completely stupid, like um, misreading of what the purpose of the ministerial direction is. Like it, if you you know, I come back to the DIT. They know that they are being asked to you know they're sort of effectively a lobby group inside government to seek a distant relationship with, with the European Union so they can, they can um, pursue more trade opportunities elsewhere. And they know that that's not a cost-effective way to operate. They know this is nuts. Like, 
write a letter. Like, just let us know you know in advance. Um, just in case anyone is looking blank, I should probably explain what a ministerial director sorry, is. Yes, very sorry, quickly. Uh, <clears throat> um, if a uh, senior civil servant, the accounting officer for the department, so usually the permanent secretary, objects to something on value for money, proprietary, feasibility or regularity grounds, that is, they think it goes beyond the power a minister has available to them under the law, they can write, and there, there's always a financial component to all of this, they can write to the minister in question, say that they object on these grounds, and they require a written direction a ministerial direction from the minister in order to proceed. So essentially the responsibility and accountability switches to the minister when that happens. And again, we have an explainer for that. So. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Gary, that's great. You've been waiting patiently. Thank you. Um, I'm Vicky Price. I used to work for the government. Um, in fact, I speak as somebody who did get a direction uh, from uh, Peter Mandelson, would you believe it, at the time of the financial <laughs> crisis, and it was all to do with the scrappage scheme. So uh, he thought it was an excellent idea. Uh, we thought it perhaps wasn't. It was going to benefit Italian car manufacturers, and of course, that's exactly what happened. But uh, he gave a direction and went ahead. So um, that was fine. He still thinks he's right and that I was wrong. So uh, it's an ongoing saga. Um, but it's quite interesting. Just a few little points about the way the civil service works, which is actually brilliantly exposed. In terms of knowing what your specialisms are, it doesn't actually mean that the specialists work in this. So uh, when we tried to find out how many scientists we had, when we started sort of really worrying about scientists a bit more, climate change and so on, uh, lots of people that we discovered were scientists worked on policy which had absolutely nothing to do with science. So you've got all these people, but you're wasting them, basically. Uh, so we're still not using them properly. And the real problem that exists is, is already identified that is to do with, do you advance it up to the ministers? Do you have the the thing, to, the, um, uh, if, if you like, courage to go and tell them that they're completely and utterly wrong. Um, the real problem happens because A, lots of economists don't have access to the ministers, and second, that a lot of the evidence that they produce is suppressed. It's just not liked. There is a huge amount of industry capture in lots of departments, and you tend to do what it is that the policymakers do. So, so there are problems like that. So it's not innovation, really, although that sounds great. It is pure, boring evidence that is just not listened to. And the worst thing that still happens is that no money is spent on evaluating policies. You know, which one shall we, you know, now, uh, Boris Johnson has said, at least, that he's gonna look at quite a lot of stuff uh, and use very, very tight cost-benefit stuff to, to kill lots of projects to see whether they're working or not. And on the other hand, of course, we hear that, in fact, we're going to forget all about what the Green Book says and we're going to be innovative. Now, I'll worry about that what that will mean and whether direction really would be an issue that we're ever going to get you know, uh, on top of. In other words, whether there will be any of those uh, under such an environment which is terribly contradictory in terms of what it is that a specialist is supposed to do. Thank you. Niska, do you want to come in on that because it's the, the sort of insurgence versus the good old-fashioned evidence and access? Yeah, I'm definitely, not, I'm definitely not trying to pit one against the other at all. Um, so the evidence base is, is absolutely critical. I think just, an interest, just a reflection of what you said. Um, to your point about how you actually utilise the expertise in the department, um, I think there merits a deeper conversation about how SPADs interact mm -hmm. with the departments. So you can talk about having more of ex-specialism in the department and talk about having expanded um, ministerial teams as well. Um, but the predominant culture about how um, the political echelons deal with the civil service is um, not one that's conducive to um, the, the relevant ideas actually filtering up to the top. Um, and it's quite interesting because the UK is one of the kind of least politicised 
um, uh, governments in the world when it comes to the administration. I mean, the US is often um, referred to as a classic like uh, antithesis to that, where a lot of people get changed around with, with the change of administration. But that um, kind of apolitical nature of the civil service isn't much value if the ideas from that civil service don't get a, a, a sufficient hearing. Um, and I think there are much more constructive ways that the two sides need to speak to each other. Um, and obviously that's been damaged even more by Brexit. So hopefully this kind of marks a bit of a transition in the way that we can operate. Gavin, is there more the Whitehall Monitor says about evidence and the use of evidence and where these people are and making the most of them? I'd, I'd love it to do that. Um, getting evidence about evidence is surprisingly difficult. Um, but what, what I would say, just in response to sort of Vicky's um, very good points around that, is that I was doing an event for the National Centre for Social Research on this very stage um, last week and mentioned the phrase decision-ready information. Now, getting hold of the right data across government, even though, as Chris says, there is a lot of it there, getting it to the right place in a way that people can actually use is, is still much more difficult than it should be. And when we talk about data and information, we're talking about so many different things, national statistics, people's personal data for research, you know, in, institutional memory. It's actually quite a big and difficult field. But anyway, even if we could get that decision-ready information together, somebody from the audience said, well, that's all well and good, but what about making sure that we have information-ready policy makers? <laughs> and and you know, where are the incentives for politicians to actually use the evidence properly. Um, I think storytelling, which somebody mentioned earlier, is definitely part of it. Explaining what this stuff is and why you should think about it, why it's important. Increasing the political costs for not using evidence um, is possibly another way of doing it as well. Again, the, the not easy answers um, to any of that. Um, not least, uh, because Ipsos Mori did some polling a few weeks ago which included asking, I think, about 100 MPs what they thought about the evidence and you know, whether they should be using evidence more. And they're saying, well, we'd love to use evidence more, but we don't have the time. It goes against our party line. So I think there's some real political challenges in trying to solve some of those problems. I do think the more broadly, some, I actually I had an argument with Peter Mandelson when he announced the Scrappish scheme, and he said that talking to me was like talking to the worst part of the Treasury. So <laughs> um, I'm glad that we were on the same side on that. Um, the, the, um, I think on the on the sort of um, these data and analysis questions, there's a, there's a problem with the fact that, um, as you say, with sort of the political will to understand some of this stuff, um, there is also a, a huge, if you look at the sort of Dominic Cummings list of things he cares about, like procurement as well, large numbers of these things are actually criticisms, not the civil service, they're administers. So they are it would be quite easy to buy an aircraft carrier if we could just decide what aircraft carrier we're buying today and just buy it and then not change it every 15 minutes between now and delivery, right? There, lots of the problems that we have relate to, to ministerial process and ministerial decision making. Um, yeah. It's a dynamic process, certainly. <laughs> I'm going to look more towards the back of the room uh, for any questions. Uh, gentleman at the back. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. If you want to be a disruptive government, can you afford to disrupt government itself? And related to that, isn't the problem less a shortage of whizzy new school skills like uh, uh, data scientists and more a lack of institutional memory? And, and what you see in Whitehall, I think compared with other countries, is already a unique level of disruption going on. As some of the IFG own analysis shows uh, the um, you know, for example, the treatment of vocational education with sort of 48 secretaries of state and 28 different ministerial policies. Uh, 
pieces of legislation. So uh, it seems to me that the onus is really on those wanting to disrupt things to prove that there really is a need. Thank you. Charlie, a disruptive government shouldn't disrupt itself, what do you think? I guess you could sort of change the question slightly and say, can the government be truly disruptive, but in the positive way that uh, Chris mentioned? Innovative. Uh, innovative, uh, without disrupting itself. Because many of the problems that government is wanting to focus on, be it you know, rebalancing the economy and levelling up, kind of, be it trying to improve education attainment, sorting out the kind of technical training and skills issues, uh, these are all issues that we've had for an awful long time. So um, you could perhaps, if one were to be provocative, say you can't uh, be disruptive unless you're prepared to disrupt yourself and the way you deliver things and the way you look at a problem. I think um, that comes with quite a hefty caveat in that uh, it depends what disrupting yourself means. Um, and if it's about disrupting processes, if it's about disrupting some of the culture and we've identified things like the hierarchy, the sort of rigidity, um, the, the sort of the challenges around getting um, advice and evidence and ideas up through the channels, absolutely, 110%, you have to disrupt that. You know, the civil service is going to have to modernise in the way it behaves, particularly if it wants to keep these new, smart, young people that are coming in or the people that Dom Cumming wants to bring in because those people aren't going to come in and go, uh, well, I, you, know, you brought me in to think differently and now you're telling me to do exactly this in this way in this little box. They're just going to leave. So I think it depends what you want to disrupt. And I think on the in institutional memory question, um, there is still a huge amount of institutional memory. I mean, a huge amount. You go into the big departments where most of the civil service uh, is, because the operational side has a lot of uh, institutional memory. I think there's certainly a challenge as to how we make sure that the operational is actually properly plugged into the policy and the data and the IT and the digital, etc. Because I think there are massive challenges in UC, I think is a good example of where those parts were not plugged in well enough to understand how if I make this technical decision, this policy implication and then operationally and you know all that uh, kind of stuff. Um, but I do think we have a particular problem at the moment, which the monitor has really brilliantly highlighted, which is that it's turnover, not just in the senior civil service, not just in ministers, not just in SPADs, but the whole lot of them. So actually what we're going to have is a top layer in government who are all novices, and that is a problem. So, so one of my long-running hobby horses, I'm glad you brought up, is, um, is about... So since basically for a few decades we've... we've broadly followed the sort of the new public management school of public management. So we've brought in league tables, inspectorates, where there's not been the capacity of, de of operational deliverers to deliver. We bring in a third party. We sometimes bring in third parties prospectively to offer competition. Um, and the, the slight problem we've got is it's had a few effects. One is that the center, since it in lots of places no longer has a sort of operational role, is a commissioner, pure commissioner, and it doesn't have the capacity to commission anymore because it doesn't have enough skill because it no longer runs the service. So TFL is a really good commissioner because it's still run by railway engineers, basically, is the, sort of, is the counterpoint. Um, the Department of Transport is not run by railway engineers. The, um, if you, there's, a, there's a big problem with all this because the, we've, we've come to think of public policy as, as, as of creating incentive structures for management. So we think... If we can only come up with a clever way of squeezing the managers at each of these bits of service, 
then they'll just deliver, right? So if we can just get the league tables right, schools will get better. And if we can just push head teachers a bit faster through Ofsted, you know, even better. And what we have not thought enough about is basic capability, right? We're beating the horses as fast as they can run at the moment, and they can't run any faster. And we need to think more about capability under the bonnet and under the surface, not just in the civil service, but sort of all the way down the track. And actually, my, my contentious pick for the best education sector of the last 20 years is probably Nikki Morgan, because she didn't do anything. And she just let the civil service actually recover for a little bit, which is what it needed. It needed people to actually just be able to read in and find out what their jobs were. Um, and her ineffectiveness was really useful for, for, for giving people some breathing space. But in part, she could do that because Gove had done the reforms in the first place. So, to add yeah. in my contentious bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, the Department for Education went out overnight from being a, being a strategic department to an operational department, and no one really told them this was happening. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thought about how we build capability and how we make capability work and um, so we don't accidentally create a gigantic local authority in Whitehall for running several thousand schools. Um, the, you know, that's something that we, we don't think enough about. What is the skill set? I mean, the Department of Education is a really good example of a place where the, the, what they're being asked to do is run way ahead of their capability to do it. They're now in charge. They are literally now in charge of deciding which schools have sports halls. Right. Case study there. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Can uh, I just add a really, yeah. really quick comment? Um, innovation does not equal disruption in all cases. You can have incremental innovation. Mm -hmm. And also, innovation is also, I find, a really unhelpful word to use with government because people <laughs> are just like, oh, you're just thinking of jazzy new things. Actually, yeah. improving the way in which SPADs and um, civil servants communicate and just trying that on a quarter by quarter basis and improving it, that is innovation. So I don't think we're talking about kind of rip up the bowels of the civil service in order to do anything different. But doing the same things and expecting different results is insanity. Can I just jump in very quickly on institutional oh. memory as well? Um, <laughs> classic problem that's been surfaced by so many uh, former Institute for Government reports. There are, I think there are two aspects. One is the people aspect, which Charlie has summarised brilliantly. But there is also the data aspect, if you like. So. We talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Those are the sexy bits of data and <coughs> at the moment. Knowledge and information management institutional memory is also a data issue. It's about how you get information between different places and between different people. The 20th century had this, these amazing things, I don't know if you've heard of them, called librarians, <laughs> that kind of knew where the things that you wanted to get hold of were. We have not seen that translate into good metadata. That is the data that tells us about the data in the 21st century. I think that's a serious problem. The email email and electronic filing is a big thing. So one very final question, really brief, because we've got over time. Just at the back in the corner there. Um, and I can ask for short answers. Because okay. uh, thank you very much. Richard Parker from Gowling, uh, a legal advisor to government. Just one question, really, and that's building on the themes we've discussed already, is actually are civil servants in the wrong place? Um, Really, I mean, re referring here to the devolution agenda, and actually, do we need civil servants out of Whitehall and closer to the, the problems that we're trying to address? Thank you. I'm going to work, yes. a, work along here. We know what Chris thinks, uh, and give Gavin the last word. This yes, if there's political, uh, serious political will behind um, the devolution agenda. Uh, yes, I wrote Devo and circled it several times because uh, I thought we would come onto it. Um, very, very briefly, uh, a chief constable told me the other day that. Uh, Whitehall now, and the Home Office in particular, is even less willing to leave London uh, <laughs> since Brexit kind of, you know, sort of became the big focus uh, than before, and it wasn't great before, so he said they hadn't seen someone out of the civil service, uh, and this force is a large force. Interesting. Chris? Yes, yes. I think the, I think the, 
and there are particular parts of it that should be moved. The plant for transport should obviously not be in London. I mean, yeah. it strikes me as an obvious thing. Um, the, we also need to um, we also need to be clear that when we say talk about moving civil servants to other parts of the country, we don't mean the operational staff yeah. because they're mostly already yeah. elsewhere in the country. I don't think the Department for Education has profited from the fact that it's got large offices. I think in Doncaster and Sheffield, right? Like it's they don't have any input. Um, yes to all of the above, but again, it, it's not just about devolution, it is about moving civil servants and the policy and the senior roles as well. Two-thirds of all senior civil servants are in London. You're not going to be able to develop proper hubs around the country where people have those different cognitive experiences, those different backgrounds, if you're not, if you're not providing career paths for them there. Um, I think it's also a case of can we use better modern technology to try to better understand and involve people in decision-making as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to our brilliant panel. Uh, we'll show our appreciation. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, uh, and do come to future uh, IFG events. Thank you.